The Pellicle Podcast is sponsored by the wonderful folks at Rode Microphones. We've used Rode mics to make this podcast since our very first episode. I'm a big fan of the NT1, their vintage voice studio condenser, which we use for our voiceovers and narration. Recently, I've also turned to their reporter handheld mic, which is perfect for capturing interviews in the field. This introduction is being recorded using their best-selling NT-USB Mini, plus a little EQ and compression. It's a brilliant little USB mic that's perfect for improving your audio, especially your video calls. You just stick it on your desk, plug in your headphones, and sound more like you're in a studio. The NT-USB Mini is available now, and it's just £99 RRP. Go check it out at Rode.com. Thanks again to Rode, and now, it's on with the show. Hello, welcome to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm Matthew Curtis. How are you doing? So it's December the 3rd, lockdown ended yesterday, and uh, a lot of my friends were able to go to the pub in Tier 2. And I was scrolling through Instagram, as I do, and I saw my friends in London. I lived in London for 15 years, but um, I live in Manchester now. I moved here a couple of months ago, and I saw them enjoying their pints with their substantial meals, and I couldn't help but feel a pang of sadness that I couldn't do the same. And people up here in Manchester are absolutely uh, at the end of their tether. They've been in some form of lockdown for for 16, 17 weeks now with the rules constantly changing. And, um, you know, it's probably even worse in Scotland and in Wales. But the fact that you can now go to the high street, I can go to TK Maxx and thumb through Discount Le Creuset with 100 other people. I can go to the gym. I can go to a football match. But I can't go to the pub for a pint by myself because the government doesn't trust us to go and have a nice beer without a substantial meal or at all. That's got me feeling, got me feeling a little bit down. You know, I miss pints. And when I say I miss pints, I mean, not just the beer, although I do miss the beer, but it's the, the act of having the act of being in a pub, the feeling of being in a place, a, a public place, a social place, you know, you go out, and uh, and you have maybe a bite to eat and a few drinks with some friends or your partner or by yourself and then you wake up the next day and you've got a bit of an endorphin boost and you get that little bit of extra to help you get through the day to exist to live I should say because existing is what we're doing we're not living and without now that's being taken away we're all sort of like running on fumes what you know so when the pubs opened last time, I was really worried about going because I, I had coronavirus in March and it was the most ill I've ever been and it was terrible and I was really petrified about getting it again or, or giving it to someone um, I really cared about and spreading it around. But then as I eased back into pubs, I realised the effect that visiting them had on my well, well-being. It's a risk and reward scenario, right? So, you, you know, you make that choice. So if you don't feel safe going out or to the pub, then that is, you know, you need to protect yourself. But if you are willing to, to, you know, there's a virus out there. And if you go, okay, I, I could get infected, but I, I really need this to, to live. Um, you, you make that choice. You know, you've got to 
got to think about everyone else. You've got to wear your mask. You've got to sanitize. Keep away from your at-risk loved ones. But I think that the fact that the government doesn't trust people just to have a couple of beers or, you know, a glass of wine, whatever, uh, it's uh, it's deeply frustrating. If you had a pint this week, um, I'm very happy for you. And I know the rest of us will be able to soon. The vaccine news is amazing. Um, and I think we'll be back to normal faster than we expect. But um, bloody hell, I really want to go to the pub. And uh, that's that's top of my Christmas list. Dear Santa, for Christmas, I would like pints. I think I might just, I think, I think we might see that here in Manchester uh, before the end of the year. We'll find out. This episode marks a bit of a change for us. This is episode 18. If you're new to the podcast, there's 17 lovely episodes, very well scripted, very well written episodes, which you can uh, go back to and listen to and uh, and enjoy and get a, get a bit of a flavour of what this podcast is about. About It's about beer, uh, but also about cider and wine and um, and lots of other things. It, and it's my little personal scratch pad for, for you know, I, I do this podcast entirely by myself and it's great and I love it. But I want to want to change things up. So I had this grand plan for the podcast that I would do these documentary style, heavily produced episodes and release them as, as in a series format, like six or eight episodes at a time. And I did that with season one, but it was just, I didn't have the time or resources to really invest in it. So what I've decided to do is switch to an episodic format uh, to bring you more regular episodes. And in 2021, um, I've decided to invest in this podcast a bit more because I really love doing these episodes. Um, I really love podcasting. I love the format and I, I want to do more of them. So I'm going to write a little bit less in 2021 and hopefully do a few more of these. And, you know, I, I avoided doing long form interviews because there's so many great beer podcasts out there that I enjoy listening to that do interviews so well. But sometimes I'll listen to them and go, oh, I wish, I wish they'd ask that question. And I realize I'm in a very advantageous position as a beer writer where I can reach out to those people and ask those questions and I miss I miss doing interviews so what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce some some interviews um I'm going to do and I'm going to do these style episodes where I just talk about how I feel I went back to some of my really early beer writing and I invested a lot more time in talking about how I felt about something than than why it mattered to the industry or to the consumer and that's probably because I, you know, I used to be a blogger and I always will be a blogger, but I, I now work as a professional writer in beer. And when you write for someone else, when you're working for an editor you, or, or you're working for a publication that has a, an established audience, you are thinking about them. And I think I've really missed uh, something I thought about a lot this year is how I've missed really talking about how I feel about something. So I want to invest in that. And I figured doing some talk radio style podcasts. Uh, where it's less of me talking at you, but more like I'm, like we're having a conversation. I hope that's how this feels. It's unscripted. I'm actually finding it really difficult. Uh, hopefully it's something I get used to, but because uh, you might tell from the previous episodes that I, I read from a script to keep everything nice and clean. But um, today I'm just uh, riffing on the mic, as it were. And I want to see how it goes. And if you like this style of episode, then drop me a line. It's Matthew at PellicleMag. Dot com. That's Matthew with two T's. Or just send me a tweet or an Instagram message at Total Curtis. That is my handle. If you don't know it, I'm sure most of you do. A lot of people like to slide into to the DMs these days and have conversations, uh, which is which is grand. And uh, I love getting email. So yeah, let me know what you think of this this new style of 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 op ed episode 
talk radio? I don't know what it is. You might have recognised it from other podcasts you listen to. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of non-beer podcasts and really getting an idea of what I enjoy from a podcast and trying to put a little bit of that into this. Before I go on, I want to talk about Pellicle. Uh, I founded it with my good friend Johnny Hamilton um, in May 2019 as a a website and eventually this podcast. And we keep saying we're going to do a print magazine. A little word on that print magazine is that um, we are going to do it one day. We're determined to, but we want to do it to a certain standard. And uh, fuck me, it's expensive. We've spoken to to designers and printers and uh, we want to do it right and we will do it. But what we've discovered is everything costs a little bit more. So we we spend sort of two to three grand on the website per month. Uh, We pay all our contributors. We actually pay our writers the same rate as the Daily Mirror Online and the Huffington Post UK. So we pay an industry standard rate. I actually think if that's the industry standard, it's not high enough. Anyone in who writes for a living will will be nodding their head now, hopefully. We want to make sure everyone gets paid fairly and we want to produce high quality content. So people, um, we, we raise money uh, through a service you've probably heard of called Patreon. And uh, you can go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash pellicalmag. And you can give us essentially the cost of a pint a month. And that helps us fund the magazine. If you're a business, you can give us more than that. If you're an individual, you can give us more than that. The subscriptions start from a pound and go up to 80 quid, depending on what you can afford. And if you can't afford it, that's fine. The Patreon model is brilliant that way. We want Pe- we want Pellicle to be free, right? Uh, and it's th- the people who can afford it make it available for people who can't afford it. Uh, so it's a really good model. Uh, and that's why if you can chuck us a little bit every month, please do. Um, and it helps us keep the website sustainable. We, we're still losing money every month because we that that we think that's how you build a good publication by spending on spending on content. So yeah, it's patreon.com forward slash pellicle mag. So what do I want to talk about today? Well, it's a burning topic. It's uh, it's a bit of a long one. It's a bit of a rant, but it's something that's been debated in Parliament and has has really taken over the. Uh, the headspace of everyone in beer over the last few months, for some people a few years. Um, and I want to talk about beer duty, or, or to use a more common phrase, beer tax. How much tax brewers pay. And it's been debated in Parliament, and everyone's quite emotional about it. So I've been covering this, the fact that they want to change the beer duty structure in the UK for, for three years. I wrote my first article on it for Good Beer Hunting three years ago. So I'm, I feel quite invested in it. And I, those of you who know me know that I, I don't like to sit on the fence. I like to pick a side. And I've really thrown my weight behind the small brewers who I think are being hard done by. And, um, and CBA, the Society of Independent Brewers, they'll come up a lot in this. Uh, they're very important. important. But... Um, they are on the side of these these smaller brewers. And I'll try and get into it. I, I need to build a bit of background and explain why it's such a big deal um, and explain how beer tax works in the UK. And before I go on, I'm, this is just me exploring how I feel about this subject. I've written about it a lot, but I've never really looked like I've, I've analysed the industry, I've analysed what it means to the consumer, but I've never stopped and gone, how do I feel about this? What does it mean to me? So 
I'm literally exploring an idea here and I might get quite emotional about it or sincere. People call me emotional, but I prefer the term sincere because I, I give a shit, right? Please take this with a pinch of salt. This is an opinion that you can, you can add to the wealth of other opinion and information that's out there. But this isn't the be-all and end-all of this subject. This is just one guy who happens to have a microphone in front of him and the privilege to, to be able to rant and afford to be able to put it on the internet to little or no consequence. Well, we'll see about that. So beer duty in the UK. So I want to rewind to, to 2002, which is kind of where this story starts. So in 2002, there were about, some, there were about 700 odd breweries in the UK and uh, the then Labour government uh, with Prime Minister Tony Blair and uh, Gordon Brown, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, so he was the guy in charge of the money, they introduced something called progressive beer duty. I like, now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the language used here. So it's called, you see it called out there, you see it called small brewers relief or small brewers duty relief. And the language is really important. So if you if you search progressive beer duty, it was a Europe-wide initiative to try and make the beer market fairer for the small brewers against the, the big guys. And the word progressive is really, it's a really forward-thinking, productive word. It means this is, this is a, a positive, progressive means positive change. And so if you call it progressive beer duty, you're saying this is something that is a, is a positive change for the industry. But by calling it small brewers relief and the, the Tory government have, have have said this. The relief is a reductive term. It means, you know, it's it's a temporary thing. You put um, you take painkillers to relieve a headache. You put a sticky plaster over something to relieve a, a, a cut. But when it's better, you take it off. And that's what they want to do now. They want to they want to rip the plaster off. Whether they don't care what's underneath, but that you know, for them, relief is temporary, and and it's not this progressive beer duty, uh, which is how it was, was originally billed, which is a permanent change to the industry. Progressive beer duty, SBR, whatever you want to call it, it does need updating because the industry looks completely different to how it was when it was introduced. But that's because it was successful. But I need to build a bit more background. See, I told you, I'm already getting quite sincere. So in 2002... Uh, before this was introduced, all brewers paid the same rate of tax on the beer they sell or the beer they make and sell plus VAT. All brewers pay 20% VAT, uh, which is often missed in this argument that there's no discount on that for any brewers. So in 2002, they introduced this thing called progressive beer duty. And what it meant was that any brewer making less than 5,000 hectolitres, and to put that into real terms, that's 880,000 pints. That sounds like a lot, but it's not. Like In beer production terms, a brewery making 880,000 pints a year is like, an, it's like a small independent restaurant in terms of their size compared to a chain. It's like a local Italian versus Carluccio's or Zizi or something like that. It, it's, it's, it's not a lot. But essentially, any brewer making less than... 5,000 hectolitres of beer got a 50% discount on the duty they were paying to even the market so that they had a fair playing field. And then in between 5,000 hectolitres and 
60,000 hectolitres. You paid progressively more as your brewery grew up until you hit 60,000 hectolitres, several million pints of production, where you paid the full duty. And the bigger brewers will say this double, this is double, but as we, as I said before, everyone's paying VAT, so it's not, it's not quite double, but it is, it's a lot more. But you, when you're a big brewery, you have access to, you get, you pay better rates on hops, on equipment, you have economies of scale on your favour. So, you know, a brewery making 5,000 hectolitres will have eight to 10 staff. So, you know, these are small operations with high overheads, especially a modern brewery that's making modern styles of beer that have a lot of hops in it and that it's all about the highest quality ingredients highest quality ingredients are expensive and they don't have access to the same rates as the bigger brewers the problem with small brewers duty relief progressive beer duty whatever you want to call it is that around the the 10,000 hectolitre mark there is something they call the the cliff edge so the the duty is not a steady increase it goes up a little bit after 5,000 then it shoots up and then once you hit about 20 to 30,000 hectolitres, you taper up gradually. And this has been labelled by the industry as the cliff edge, which is a term I don't really, don't really like. Essentially, in order to, if you're growing your brewery and you reach this point, when you get to 10,000 hectolitres, you need to get massive investment to get through it. You need, you need money and you need to grow in order to make sure the economies of scale still work in your favour. You also need to take on a lot more staff if, you, if you're going over that size. So it's immensely challenging. And there are, there are people in the industry who, who want to change this to make it easier for breweries to grow, uh, which is where this debate has, has come from. So that's, that's progressive beer duty. That's how it works. So a few years ago, around 2016, they, there was a, a grumble from what, what we'll call mid-sized brewers that this rate of duty is is not fair for them. So let's talk let's look at the market and and how fair it is. So the reality of the the UK beer market is that 71.9% of all beer in the UK is made by five breweries. Uh, the most is made by Molson Coors who make Carling which is the best selling beer in the UK. Then you've got Heineken and that's not just Heineken that's Heineken Foster's, Cronenberg, Amstel, and uh, a lot of other smaller brands they they own in part or in full. You've got Carlsberg, who've just merged with Marsden's. AB InBev, the largest brewer in the world. They actually make 30% of all the beer in the world, AB InBev, and Hauser-Busch InBev, to use their full name. Um, They're not the biggest producer in the UK, but they are the biggest in the world. And there's Asahi, who also own Fuller's. And meantime, they are the fifth biggest. So you've got that 72% of the market. You haven't even got to Guinness. So once you include all the big brands, Diageo are the one that, ones that own Guinness, that's, that's 80% of, of the UK beer market that they have control over, a handful of multi-billion pound brands. And then at the smaller end of the scale, about 6% of the market are about 2,000 small independent craft breweries. Now, before Small Brewers Relief was introduced, that, that, that was, you know, didn't exist. And then, and then it was like 1%, but now it's 6%. So it's growing. And in the middle, the, the 14% is what people call the family brewers. The, the, or sometimes they call them the regional brewers. I mean, they're not, these are national brands that are quite big. 
that they, they call them the middle. Sometimes they call the squeeze middle, which is, uh, you know, I, I don't like that term. These are big brewers, um, but they oper- operate in this midsection of the market and they operate within the existing confines of, of the, the market that's been set up by the big brewers. And many of these brands that survived a lot of consolidation, they've been through a lot of industry hardship. So so when Small Brewers Relief was introduced in 2002, there were 700 small brewers, in, many of which were the ones that are now mid-sized because they've grown thanks to Small Brewers Relief. But over the, the time, since from 2002 to 2020, over the last 18 years, we've gone from 700 breweries to nearly 2,500. London alone, London had... 10 breweries. That's the lowest it's had in the last few decades. People will say four or six. No, it, it, it's 10. I've been corrected by beer historians too many times uh, to know that's, uh, that's the actual number. But London has nearly 130 breweries now, and it's still got space for more. It's a huge city because many of those breweries are very small. But across the UK, we jumped from 700 to about 2,500 breweries in 18 years. And initially, these people in the middle and the large breweries weren't really that that worried but now these people this 14 percent is is quite worried and i'm going to get like as i get into this uh this rant i want to say how this whole small brewers relief argument is something of a false flag i think it's uh we'll get into it because if you once you look at the capacity that the amount of beer being made in the uk over the last over the same time period over the last 18 years we make 30% less beer than we used to. So there's an argument there. Okay, we've, cre- we've stimulated the market and we have made, we've introduced nearly 2,000 new breweries to the market in the last 18 years. That's great, except we're actually producing 30% less beer. So that's, that's a v- very easy way for the bigger breweries to go to the government and go, something is wrong. We need to fix the, the infrastructure of our industry and what we pay because these small brewers are, are, are ruining our volumes. What that doesn't look at is what what else has happened in that time. We've lost like 20,000 pubs. At one point a few years ago, we were losing 29 pubs a week. People stopped going to the pub for for several reasons, mostly because supermarkets got really cheap. So in 2018, something really interesting happened. We started buying more beer at the supermarket than in pubs for the first time ever. It was a 52-48 split. Ugh, that ratio, the cursed ratio. Obviously, this year it's been a lot more because for five months the pubs have been closed. So people say, "Oh, people are drinking a lot more now," because because you know, look at the supermarket sales. Like, yeah, no, they're not. The pubs are the pubs are closed. They're not drinking more. They're just not. They're not. You know, they're not going to the pub. But our habits have changed as consumers. So there's this idea that beer is supposed to be. Uh, a commodity product and accessible to all. And there will always be a product, there should always be a product that is accessible to all, a Carling or a Stella, something that is affordable and, and tastes good. You know, I don't think they taste good, my two examples, but a lot of people do. That's the important thing. The majority of people who buy beer in the UK do. They like them. We people who like craft beer are in the minority. Uh, it is a niche interest. And, and we should remember that. I've, I've gone off on a tangent now. Let's try and bring it back in. So there are people that think that beer is still this commodity, the kind of thing you used to go out and drink uh, eight pints of and you, you hadn't really spent much money. 
But now, if you drink eight pints now, that's a lot of money, you know. So beer is now, it's a luxury product for most of us. And, it, and, and going out for a beer is, adds to that luxury. You spend, you know, you spend four, five, six pounds on a pint when you can buy a beer for one or two pounds in the supermarket. And, and you know, people are busier. They're working longer hours, going out less. So you're going to go home and drink beer, and and then my generation, the millennials, we have we have less disposable income, and and our the next generation, Gen Z, that they will have even less disposable income. So they're going to go to the pub less. It's it's a treat. I go to the pub a lot. I invest a lot of my money in going to the pub when they're open because of the um, amount of well being it gives. It gives me that that feeling of joy. But habits have changed. People are buying less beer, but they're buying better. They would rather have two pints of a nice IPA than eight pints of lager or, or something else entirely. So what this 30% reduction in, in production doesn't really look at is the fact that people's habits have changed. And when you drink at home, you don't drink as much as you do in the pub anyway. I, I, in lockdown, I've realized I've, I've drank a lot less this year. Even though I've drank a lot of beer, I'm not drinking pints. Um, and when I'm in a pub with my friends, you know, I'll always have, I'll always find room for another. But here at home on my own, I have a couple of cans and I'm tired and I go to bed. And I'm sure a lot of you can relate to, to that. So what we've got, zooming out, what, what we've got here is we've got the, the people, the, these big brands who have existed in this industry with these mid-sized brands are now pointing at these smaller brands the craft breweries and saying, keep an eye on them. They're taking your market share. So what the, some breweries in the mid sized tier have done have said that the tax they are paying is unfair and is damaging to their businesses. And these smallest businesses should be paying more tax because they are, they are able to sell their beer more cheaply. They are, and they have uh, advantages that we don't have, which is fucking bollocks. It costs so much money to run a small brewery, much more than it costs to run a large brewery per, per person. Generally, there are examples of breweries, very small breweries that use the relief to sell beer really cheaply and devalue the market. But um, when you look at the bigger picture, that's exactly what the midsize and big brewers do as well. It's, it's a false flag. It's, it's the, 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 the real argument we'll come to is, is the pub tie. That's what I'm building towards. That's what you want me to hear. Access to market is the problem. And we'll get onto that. Not not tax, and being good, and and collaborative. But yeah, let's uh, let's come to that in a bit. So, what there's a, there's a group called the Small Brewers Duty Relief Coalition. Not all of them are small. Um, Marsdens are in this coalition, and they are now owned by Carlsberg. But the name stands, and and. They went to the government, very, did some very effective lobbying and said the tax is wrong. And SEBA, the Society of Independent Brewers, they also said, we think that the, this, you know, this is 18 years old, the market's different, it needs changing. But not. But SEBA have said, do not change the tax for the brewers less than 5,000 hectolitres. And just you know, for perspective, SEBA has about 800 members and 90% of its members produce less than 2,000 hectolitres, I believe. Only a handful of its members, about 150 of them, are between 2,100 and 
5,000 hectoliters, which is where that's the, this is the area where they want to change the tax, right? So the proposal from the Small Brewers Duty Relief Coalition was to actually re- increase the tax for any brewers making more than 1,000. But the government have picked this arbitrary figure of, um, of 2,100. I think it's because it's like 10,000 pints a week or something. It's like a nice round figure for the treasury that makes sense. 375,000 pints a year or th- 365,000 pints a year. That would be, that'd be 10,000 pints um, a week. So they want them to start paying more tax to reduce uh, the relief and then offset that money. So these smaller brewers will pay more tax and the brewers in the middle around this cliff edge will be able to pay less tax. How ridiculous is that? I mean, to take, to say we want to tax the, the smaller part of the industry more so that people who make more money pay less tax because it's unfair. It just doesn't, just doesn't make any sense to me. And certain, the breweries who are closest to the 5,000 hectolitres will be the ones, they will see the biggest, like an 8% increase in their tax. If they were just, so all, all beer in the UK is taxed by alcohol. Um, so if they were making a 4.3% beer, um, they'd pay about £33,000 more, which is, that's that's a member of staff and a bit. That's that's masses of income. These, these you know, I, I know a lot of brewers and they're not driving around in sports cars and living living in five bedroom houses. You know, it's a modest living being a brewer. There are some people in brewing who've been very successful and done very well for themselves, but they are in a tiny, tiny minority. These small brewers are just, they're just making ends meet. And for bigger brewers to turn around and say, you, you, you really should pay more tax. It's not great. But also there's, there's a lot more changes that the, this uh, coalition have campaigned for, which includes changing to a cash basis, which means, I, you know, I'm not an accountant, so I don't understand it. But speaking to the breweries, the really small breweries say this will affect every small brewer. Uh, it means they can change the goalposts every year, not every 18 years. And it means there's no building in of structures. And, and the people who want to change the tax, including the, the government, said that this will remove the cliff edge at 10,000 hectolitres and, and stimulate growth in the category, uh, which again is bollocks. All it'll do is it'll move the cliff edge to where more brewers are. So it will actually restrict a lot of growth. It is, it is deliberately designed to stop that 6% market share growing, to stop craft breweries who are doing in, innovative stuff and have now started eking into the mainstream market to say, stay in your place. That, that's, that's what it is. And it looks like that's going to happen. So it's, it's, it's being debated in government right now. People have sent uh, freedom of information requests asking to see the data they're using to make these decisions and saying, no, we won't show you the data until we've finished making the decisions. There will be a consultation that, that people will be able to see that's, that's due out any moment now. And there are some MPs, some, some, there are some great um, members of parliament who are fighting for the small brewers who are actually taking the time to talk to them so this is a mainstream debate because it will change it will change the game uh, for a lot of brewers it'll put people out of business it will stop um, brewers who might want it to be a little bit bigger just a tiny bit bigger not not aspirations to be massive it's just it just stinks really and what's in it for these mid-sized brewers when they pay less tax well if they are able to be more profitable and satisfy their shareholders they might be able to to sell their breweries perhaps or merge one member of the coalition, Marsden, has already merged with Carlsberg. 
I don't think this is about stimulating growth in that mid-sector at all. I think it's about uh, some people want to flip their breweries and, and make a lot of money, uh, and it's, which means it's not about the beer. It's, it's about the money. So I hope that gives you a gist of, of what's happening in, in Small Brewers Relief. Essentially, short version is mid-sized brewers, form coalition, want small brewers to pay more tax and they pay less tax. Move cliff edge. The cliff edge, the whole cliff edge is a myth, right? It's, it's, it's the, to grow a business, you need capital, you need an investor, um, whether that's outside the brewing industry or, or from in brewing. If you want to build a big brewery, you need money to come from somewhere. And it doesn't matter where the cliff edge is. It's only people with that specific advantage are able to invest in the staff and equipment and resources to grow their breweries. Most breweries will never do that. Only a handful will. Most breweries don't want to do that. They just want to make enough beer that they enjoy, that they can earn a living, pay a few staff. It's a good living. Uh, making beer is a noble pursuit. So, so that's generally the gist of it. But what, like, that's... I think this is all a bit of a, a false flag. So there's this... Um, there's this organization, it used to be called There's a Beer for That, but now it's called Long Live the Local. And it, and it tells you to go on their website and it writes you an automatic letter to your MP that the beer tax is too high and it should go down. So is beer tax too high? So the UK actually has the third highest beer tax in Europe. Ireland are at number two and Norway are at number one. And I don't know where we are in the world, but we pay a lot more tax than the US. I know that for a fact. So, and this is quite unusual that the UK and Ireland pay high, high tax on alcohol. Norway, it's not so unusual. They pay high tax on everything and re, reinvest that in, in its people. It, that's just how their economy works. But for, for beer belt countries, it's weird. So when I say beer belt, I mean countries in Europe that are positioned environmentally for growing barley and hops and making beer. And underneath the beer belt is the wine belt where you can grow grapes and make wine. And being in either belt has influenced how our cultures have developed. So in the beer belt, you have societies that drink large measures of liquid, often, you know, go to the pub, don't eat, just have a few pints and consume a lot, a lot of liquid, if you will. I hate that term in terms of beer, but there it is. And in wine drinking countries, the culture is different. It is, it is the culture of slowing down and having a small glass of something, even a beer. You know, you go to Spain and you have a canya, you don't have a pint. They'll sell a tourist a pint, but people drink a canya, a little glass of ale. And you have it with a bit of food. And and you have this slower culture where in so the beer so what here's some good examples. The beer belt is the Czech Republic, Germany, Belgium, and then us in the UK to Ireland, and then the, the wine belt are countries like Italy, France, Spain. But if you go to Belgium, if you go to as soon as you get off the the Eurostar in Belgium, you go to the supermarket, the, the beer, even the really strong Abbey beers are really cheap. You go to the bars and you, you don't pay a lot. You go to the Czech Republic and you drink Pilsner and you're paying like a pound a glass for delicious fresh beer, expertly served. You know, you're not going to the supermarket for discount beer because being out and being social and, and paying uh, an affordable price for their drink, because beer is a commodity. It's something that everyone can afford in the Czech Republic. And in the UK and Ireland, we, you know, We've decided that, that alcohol is unhealthy. It is unhealthy if you drink a lot of alcohol and we will tax it to offset our, our national health service. But it means that we are skewed in this in these beer belt countries and that we when we pay a lot more tax for our beer. And people think we should pay 
less tax. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I believe in a fair market for the people within the UK, which is why I'm having, why I'm doing this uh, and exploring these feelings. But, but I don't know how I feel about whether or not we should have less. Ta- I mean, it'd be gr- if we did have less tax, that'd be great because beer would be cheaper. But the fact is, we, we our taxes are not normal compared to other beer drinking nations. The US pays a lot less beer tax and has the largest beer industry in the world at eight and a half thousand breweries, a lot of them very large. The UK, thanks to progressive beer duty, has the second highest amount of breweries in the world, two and a half thousand, uh, which is a lot for a small island. I, th- I think there's I think there's room for all of them personally, but it, it's a difficult market. But this so long live the local. You go on there and it says beer tax is too high, and you press a button and you can send a letter, an automated letter to your MP, and it's essentially fueling the same idea as the Small Brewers Relief Coalition. And the thing is, as a drinker, why tax? This tax will influence the amount of money you pay by pence. At the end of the day, the people who, it, you know, whenever the government do a briefing, says we are, we are lowering beer tax by 1p. And everyone's like, yeah, 1p discount. That's it. That's saved. To you as a consumer, that means fuck all. To, to a brewer, once you extrapolate that 1p a pint to 880,000 pints, you're starting to talk about real money um, that, that influences ha- like the the make or break of their business. So why there's a consumer, organ- a very well-funded consumer organization funded by some members of the Small Brewers Duty Relief Coalition asking Joe Public to write to their MP about beer tax. It all, it just all feels a bit uneasy when that's about supporting the pub. It's not, it doesn't talk about supporting the brewer. It talks about supporting the pub. You support the pub not by asking for lower beer tax, you support the pub by going to the pub and spending money and just generally going out. In in the short term, lowering the beer tax, short and long term, lowering the beer tax won't have much much effect on that, in my opinion. The, the real damage is the false flag. The real problem is that actually there's no routes to market for these, these small brewers. And I believe that this whole debate around changing beer tax is designed to obfuscate the fact that these medium-sized brewers are not playing fair in the marketplace. Now, I must say they're doing, there's nothing, generally speaking, they're doing nothing illegal. Uh, But there's this thing called the beer tie, which forces uh, licensed and tenanted pubs to only sell beers from a pre-prescribed list of what they say, basically. Just as an example. So, Weatherspoons are interesting because they are technically a free house. Weatherspoons pubs can buy what they want. They're often called the largest chain. They've got like 900 pubs. Weatherspoons aren't really the, the largest. They are the largest chain where they all say Weatherspoons above the door. But Heineken have a company called Star Pubs and Bars. And Heineken own 2,700 pubs. You wouldn't know if you were in a Star Pub because they don't say anywhere, this is welcome to Star Pubs. The people behind the bar know because it'll say it on their payslip. There are some telltale signs when you go into a star pub because all the beer is Heineken with the exception of, of something like Guinness. But you'll see Heineken on the bar, probably next to Amstel, probably next to Cronenberg or Foster's, probably next to Lagunitas IPA, the, the American brand they own, probably next to Beavertown, 
which now has the largest brewery in London. It's making a lot of beer. And maybe, depending on where you are, next to Brixton, which is Brixton Brewery is another brand they part own. Both Brixton and Beavertown, Heineken own 49% of at the moment. Just seeing those beers doesn't mean it's a star pub because it could also mean that Heineken have gone to a an independent pub and said, we we will do a deal on really cheap beer and we will fit out your cellar. You don't have to worry about it. These are the brands you get. That happens too. Um, it's called pay to play in the US. If you're listening from the US, you're like, what the, what the fuck? Yes, it's illegal in the US, although, though it does happen. But essentially, that's, that's buying taps. But they also own a lot of their own pubs. Carlsberg just bought Marsden's. It's a merger, apparently. Uh, they are, Marsden's own 1,700 pubs. And so Marston's have a lot of very traditional, well, well-respected brands from, from Hobgoblin through to their own, their own Marston's brands and many others. And then Carlsberg have everything from their craft brand, London Fields, to, well, Google it. They own a lot of beer brands. So they're able to provide a pub owner with whatever they want. And a lot of these mid-sized breweries that are complaining that beer tax is too high they also own their own pubs, a lot of them. Some of them have them in their 20s and 30s. Some of them have them in their hundreds. So in these brewery-owned pubs, there's no need to, to buy outside of their own portfolio, which means if you're a small brewer and you, you have a local pub, but you happens to be a, a star pub or, or a Marston's pub, they're not going to need, they don't need to buy your beer. They're not, or even if they wanted to, they'd be going against the terms of their license or tenancy to do that. So that is blocking a route to market. Remember, beer tax is what we're being told is the problem here, not routes to market. False flag. In addition to breweries owning thousands of pubs, there are also pubcos, companies that own thousands of pubs all around the UK, like EI Group, Stonegate, and Mitchells and Butlers. The Mitchells and Butlers own everything from O'Neill's to All Bar One to what they call Castle Pubs, and the Castle Pubs just look like normal pubs. The White Horse in Parsons Green, a very uh, well-respected uh, beer drinkers pub. It's in Michael Jackson's The Beer Hunter. That's a, that's a Mitchells and Butlers pub. It's part of a chain, though it looks very normal. But what a lot of these pub companies do is they build a list of beer that they buy wholesale from uh, breweries. Sometimes they buy through SIBA, uh, through a scheme called Beerflex, and they pay, they, they dictate the price they pay. They pay the bare minimum uh, for the beer. And this is most this mostly impacts cask beer, real ale, but also uh, more and more keg beer. But mostly in these, in these pubs, the keg beer is the traditional big lager brands, or something like Lagunitas, which is now uh, readily available in the UK. But what they're able to do is buy very cheaply, but then they go to their tenants and charge them a premium. So far more than the going rate for those beers on the open market, much, much more. And it puts these people running these pubs in this horrible position. So not only are they not allowed to buy the beers, they, you know, they're into beer and they're like, oh, there's this great little local brewery. I'll get a couple of casks. No, they can't do that. But also the beer they do have to buy they have to pay through the nose for it. And then their consumer, which has no idea about pubcos or the beer tie or any, anything like that, 
they expect to go to their local and pay a fair price for their beer. So the people selling it have to price it competitively so they don't make enough money. And this system exists to to control the market, to 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 choke it, really. And it's it's a real blight. There needs to be uh, an investigation into into it and and I believe that this entire debate around beer tax is designed to obfuscate the fact that there are no routes to market. And this is before we even get into supermarkets and supermarkets selling beer as cheaply as possible to ensure that they are selling the most beer and driving down the price. And then there's this idea in a small brewery that if you get a listing and can sell a lot of beer, that you are somehow improving consumer choice and and, and that's great for the market. But actually what you have, all you're doing is giving the consumer the idea that this beer that you pay more for the ingredients, it costs you more to make, is still available at this low knockdown price. So routes to market is this is this real issue. But now they also want a lot of the breweries who struggle to find these routes to market to pay more tax and be beholden to a system that uh, could change the goalposts every year while they start to make hay. Um, even though these are people with estates of their own pubs who, who think that they're being hard done by. Um, when the real issue is, I think these mid-sized breweries should should be instead of going, "Hey, you're you know, you're like that's my biscuit," <laughs> should be sharing the cookies around. The the big guys who own eighty percent of the UK market, they want to hold on to that. They will do and say anything to keep that bit of market share. Where I used to live in London, there was a Fuller's pub, and Fuller's have a, a almost four hundred pubs, uh, I believe. But about 12 of their pubs, they've allowed the managers to uh, a percentage of the taps, a large percentage, a majority of the taps to buy, to buy in and sell whatever beers they want. They're still putting the, their fullest markup on it, so they're, they're expensive. But the Great Northern Railway Tavern was a pub near where I used to live in, in Hornsey in North London. And changing the beer to all these local breweries just stimulated something. The idea that People who are used to a more traditional selection will walk in and go, oh, I've never heard of this nonsense, I'm walking out. Is You might get one or two people who do that, but what I saw is people go, oh, have you tried this roadie? It's great. I'll get a round in, £6 a pint. What else? The Asahi's £6 a pint, so it's it's all expensive. And they're suddenly drinking this beer from Signature Brew, a local brewery up the road. And going, oh yeah, that really, that, that's really great. I really enjoy it. There's none of that cynicism you see in some advertisers say, oh yeah, it's a bit too grapefruity. No, it, it tastes nice, and people like these beers. And if you give access to great, great food and drink and hospitality, you know, a pub is a mixture of all of these things. Then people will go go to the pub. You know, you can't go to Cornwall to a St. Austell pub and buy beer from small local breweries like Verdant and Harbour. Because St. Austell worked with Heineken to, to make sure those cellars are full of beer. Just as just one example. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I would still go to a St. Austell pub and, and, and drink their beer if I was in the area because I like that beer. I'm a consumer. But I would be much happier if I knew that they also had a small local brewery on, on the taps to be representative of the beer industry in their area. To give a leg up 
to give access to the, this market. And so now there's this bun fight and, and breweries are falling out with each other. People are boycotting brands. I'm, I'm boycotting brands. I'm not drinking Harvey's best. It pains me. You know, this is a brewery that's turned around and said small brewers should pay more tax to make a fairer market, which isn't true. And now I can't in good conscience drink one of my favorite beers. It's, it's tragic. The, the truth of it is it's a lot, a lot messier than it looks. You know, you've got pubcos like Marsden's who, that's the thing about the beer tie is it's legal. All of this, this is written into law. So what they're doing by blocking these routes to market is all perfectly legal. There are some legal activities. Marsden's brought them up because they were found to be overcharging their tenants for casks. Um, I won't go into it too much now because that could be a podcast in itself. But if you search um, Johnny Garrett Marsden's over on uh, Good Beer Hunting and read the words of Johnny Garrett, uh, he's written some great reports on on not just what I'm talking about, the pub tie, but um, on some of the illegal activities that they were caught doing, which is which is overcharging beers, essentially selling casks of beer which are hold 72 pints, charging them for 72 pints, when actually you only get about 68 pints out of a cask due to wastage and sediment in, in the barrels. Read the article, it'll explain more of it. But yeah, it's it's the reality is... The craft breweries are having to craft breweries are having to make their own markets. This is why you are seeing breweries setting up their own websites to sell their cans direct, setting up tap rooms, all stuff which I believe should be there. But actually, what this is now doing this this downward pressure is forcing the craft beer industry, the six percent, to start turning on itself and fighting and falling out. I see it. I see it every day, and that's you know because. Because the system is designed to make sure that this, all the breweries that were created by Progressive Beer Duty are only given a tiny corner of the market to play in. And what the mid-sized and ultimately the larger breweries is they want to make sure that they continue to restrict these breweries. Despite the law being changed to create them. And it's, it's not good. But don't follow the narrative that small breweries should be paying more tax. Look beyond it because what you'll see is actually there is a veil that is hiding a far more challenging industry as these breweries grow. What's the solution? I don't know. I think, you know, small breweries are going to have to make their own market. These breweries could open their own pubs, except the, the cost of, of opening a pub chain now is is way more expensive than it was 20 years ago or, or, or before then. Small breweries are not cash rich. They can't invest in property, uh, even on a rental level. So you might hear some louder voices calling for an investigation into the beer market. And after a lot of thinking and getting, you know, this is why I've done this really. I agree. It's not fair that the market has, the whole system was changed in 2002 by Gordon Brown to be fairer and now the market has changed and it needs reassessing but the solution is not to smooth the curve the cliff edge is a myth whatever you do there will be some sort of barrier to growth the idea that growth is I mean the idea that growth is the 
objective is fundamentally part of the problem. What's wrong with just getting to a certain size and going, we make enough beer and we, we make a good living and we shall remain. God bless breweries like the Colonel who, who do that. They're not the only example. They're just probably the most obvious one. So I think that's it, really. I think that's the end of my rant. What did you think? Should I do another one of those? If you thought it was a bit rubbish, by all means, say, Matt, fair play. You had a go, but uh, just stick to uh, stick to the script next time. Or if you enjoyed those thoughts, do let me know. I'll probably do another one anyway, because I think these are going to take a bit of practice to get used to. But thanks for tuning in. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again also to Rode Microphones for sponsoring this podcast. I've recorded all of my podcasts using their mics. I really love them. It's a genuine thing. And I was really stoked when they said they would support us, which means we'll have some really cool mics for field recording. Just better sound quality, which means you can ease in and listen to the podcast. And it's uh, wrapped around you in glorious high fidelity audio. And you don't have to worry too much about fiddling with your volume or whatnot. And thanks again to our Patreon supporters who make this whole thing possible, really. You're wonderful. And if you do think we're worth the price of a pint or a cup of coffee every month, do go to patreon.com forward slash mag if you fancy supporting us and, and helping us grow and, and feeding the capitalist beast. At the end of the day, though, that was quite heavy. That was quite heavy. It's important to remember there's a lot of great beer out there made by a lot of great breweries. They need your support. So do the the bottle shops that sell it. So do the pubs and bars when they reopen. And I think this was just a long-winded way of me saying, I really, you know, I I can't wait to get back to the pub and have a few pints. Maybe I'll see you there. Thanks for tuning in.